Hello once again, welcome to the Foundry Church Podcast. My name is Joseph, I'm the worship pastor here at the Foundry Church in Winter Springs, Florida. Uh, Thank you, thank you for joining us uh, for this week on the podcast. It's week four of our series called The Many Faces of God. Uh, This week the message was from our family life pastor, Hunter, and he was talking about the ones, uh, Enneagram type one, the, the perfectionists, the reformer. There's a couple different names people go with there. Uh, it was a good week. It was a weird week. You'll notice if you're watching the video, um, the stage looks very different. The cameras are in different places. Uh, all of that was intentional. We had a, a, a big play that was happening in the room, and we had to kind of set up everything around their set. So just don't let that throw you. Uh, and enjoy this message, uh, week four of The Many Faces of God. This is our family life pastor, Hunter Mertz. Good morning, Foundry family. So great to see all of you here, whether you're with us in person or worshiping with us online. Uh, Again, things might all looking a little different this morning. Uh, This is the play weekend. Uh, So we are actually in Bikini Bottoms of the SpongeBob musical this morning. Uh, So that's where we're worshiping, if you didn't know. Um, Today we're going to be talking about type ones in our Enneagram series. Uh, We're gonna learn how they display the goodness and the righteousness of God. Uh, We have another wonderful video this morning to give us a little bit of background into this type. Hello, Foundry family. Today we're going to talk about Enneagram Type 1s. So Type 1s are labeled (laughs) the moral perfectionist for a reason. Um, They are conscientious, orderly, ethical. They can be judgmental, sensible, responsible. They're serious, self-disciplined, and they feel personally obligated to improve themselves and their world, which is why to a 1, there's a correct way to load the dishwasher. (laughs) Type one struggle to believe that they are worthy or good enough because they have this inner critic constantly berating them. To silence this nagging voice, they are tough on themselves, striving always to do what is right without making any mistakes. It's an exhausting and impossible task. So the childhood message then for a type one is that it's not okay to make mistakes and it's not okay to be wrong. Again, this message is not true, but it's something that they believe at their very core. So the core fear for a type one is being wrong or bad, evil or inappropriate. From that, we have the core desire. So for a type one, it's just to have integrity, to be good, balanced, accurate, virtuous, and right. So the weakness then for a type one is resentment. They repress anger, which they would say they don't get angry because anger is bad, right? And so they really have this desire to be good. So they repress anger that leads to continual frustration and dissatisfaction with themselves, others, and the world for not being perfect. And then the core longing for a type one is that you are good. But guess what? This is an imperfect world, right? And type ones often feel assaulted by flaws that they notice wherever they turn. In an attempt to appease this, they carry a personal obligation to correct the errors in their everyday life. So this overwhelming burden leaves them with this chronic dissatisfaction since the task of improving things, it never ends. But they have this super strong internal critic that's constantly telling them there is a right and a wrong, a black and a white. They don't live at all in a gray world. So when you're communicating with a type one, remember and realize that they hear everything through this really critical lens. Their inner critic tells them that they failed. So if you have a spouse that's a type one and want to talk to them about how something is making you feel, they hear that they have done something wrong and they're not a good spouse, not a good husband or not a good wife. Um, They give input and feedback, not in an effort to be critical, but in a spirit of helping. (laughs) 
So they are constantly trying to do the right thing and they just automatically assume everybody else wants to do the right thing too, right? So I'm gonna help you know how to load the dishwasher correctly. They don't see it as being critical. They see it as being very helpful, but others perceive that as being critical, judgmental, controlling, and so they get those kind of labels. You can never criticize a type one as much as they criticize themselves. It's something that they are constantly having to battle and fight within themselves. So it's just really helpful when you give feedback or input to a type one to soften it um, in a way that they can hear it without their one critical spirit just kind of reminding them that they are bad or that they have failed. Um, on the other hand, they appreciate you being blunt with them, direct, to the point, they don't really want you to sugarcoat things. And I'm not saying to sugarcoat it, but I'm just saying being mindful that they're gonna hear it through this critical lens that they live with. I'll see you next week. We'll talk about type twos. Have a good one. So a few quick facts about type ones. They're known as the reformers. The intellectual center is the gut. Uh, and one of the dominant emotions is, can be anger. The basic fear is of being seen as corrupt or evil or as defective. And they have that basic desire to be good, to have integrity, to be balanced in their life. And some of the key motivations are to be right, uh, to strive higher and improve everything, uh, to be consistent with their ideals, to justify themselves, to be beyond criticism, so as not to be condemned by anyone, including themselves and their inner critic. When they're in a place of growth and integration, they can take on some of the positive aspects of a seven, but when they step into a place of stress and disintegration, they can take on some of the unhealthy habits of a four. So now we're going to move over to our yawn enneagram. The Ones, it is your turn to pick what color you would like to be. So go ahead and shout out what is the correct color to use. Orange. Orange, okay. Now, if I really wanted to grow ones, I would have said, okay, orange, great. We're going to do yellow. <laughs> um, and also, I would pull this out correctly. I don't know if this looks correct, right? We're gonna, we're gonna lean into Seth's um, improper way of, of opening this. I am going to go ahead and apologize to ones right now for that. Yes, but okay, so ones are gonna be right here. We're gonna go ahead and tie this off. Now, when ones move into a place of, of stress, they, they come down to two, three, fours, which are right down here. Uh, so the predictable, um, planned, methodical ones uh, will sometimes become a little moodier, a little more uh, in, irrational in some of the um, activities and thought processes uh, as they as the world around them begins to uh, take on a lot of stress. Yet, when they are in a place of, of growth, uh, a really healthy spot, they take on some of these positive aspects of a seven. Uh, they're going to take on a little more um, spontaneity, uh, some of that self-criticism uh, and anger that can lie below the surface will actually turn into a little bit of more joy uh, and take on some of that uh, aspects. So we're gonna clip this off and pretend that there's not just a giant mess here. And I should be able to know how to tie a knot. Now, I, I've been really blessed to have a number of 
of ones in my life. And they can bring that much needed structure to life. So when, when I feel lost or uncertain about the future, trying to figure out like, what that next step might be, it is the ones that I turn to to help because they have a plan. And if they don't have a plan for that very specific scenario yet, well, they can help you make a plan. Ones are also really great teachers. It brings them a lot of ones great joy to teach others how to do something the right way. And we talked about one of the key motivations being to strive higher and to improve everything. And so if you come to a one earnestly wanting to learn from them, well, it plays into the key motivations because it shows that you also care about striving higher and trying to improve yourself. And ones, they sometimes show the love by correcting you if you're doing something wrong and then showing you a better way of doing it. But that's because they love you enough to correct you. Like they love you enough to see a better version of yourself and they want to work with you to help grow you into that, to improve you. And we have a, a few memes to kind of point out some of the the, the aspects of a one, so you won't be criticized if you criticize yourself all the times, the one's inner critic to themselves. I, in honor of May the 4th, a couple of days ago, um, I'm going to load the dishwasher the correct way, right? A look of disconcern, the, the correct way, right? A one's with this, this beautiful castle of a good mood, um, watering it and ruining it with overthinking sometimes. And the last one, this one shows the, the interactions between the Enneagram numbers that we've seen so far. So you have the nine, the peacemaker, uh, as, as the friend comforting the one, and the one saying there is a right and wrong way to do things. Two and eight, who as we learned last uh, two weeks ago, is going to do their own thing no matter what, and is saying, I, I do what I want. There's a few examples that we have of ones, a pretty good list. Confucius, Plato, Joan of Arc, Martin Luther, Pope John Paul II, Nelson Mandela, Margaret Thatcher, Kate Middleton, Jimmy Carter, Michelle Obama, Al Gore, Martha Stewart, Jerry Seinfeld, Tina Fey, Meryl Streep, Harrison Ford, Mary Poppins, Spock. This is a pretty good list. This is pretty good company if you're a one. And that's going to be added on because our, our character from scripture today is going to be Paul to demonstrate what a type one sometimes looks like. And Paul wrote 25 to 50% of the New Testament. Again, that's pretty good company to be in. And because we have so much of Paul's story and, and so much of Paul's writings, we get to see all the different sides of Paul. We get to see him in his classic oneness, but we also get to see him when he's going through times of stress and times of growth. We get to see Paul guided and moved by God, and sometimes in ways that are very, very challenging for Paul. I won't obviously have time to cover everything about Paul, but if we, we'll hit a few of those high points as we travel through Paul's life. We'll start by learning a little bit about Paul before his conversion, and what his desires were then. He writes to the Philippians about this time, saying, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his Spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, although I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ." This is pretty textbook one behavior right here. On paper, Paul is doing everything perfectly. He, 
attained and held to the proper religious ceremonies, even from his birth, he became a Pharisee. A Pharisee the Pharisees were a group of scholars who became both the spokespeople for the Jewish people at the time and also translated the law and the prophets into the current culture so that the Jewish people knew how to live. Very basic nature of a one. Right? They provided the moral foundation and backbone for the community. Now, also in the nature of a type one, Paul was a reformer, even more so a zealous performer, a reformer. And in the best way that Paul understood, he acted morally heroic and with the greatest amount of passion that he could think of. And Paul read scripture, then he debated it with his colleagues, the other Pharisees, he determined the correct moral framework for their society, and then he did everything that he could to weed out and remove any and all moral corruption that went against those moral standards and that, that threatened to break apart the shalom, the peace that he was trying to help create. Now, in talking of Paul's moral heroism and passionate defense of peace within his community, I am, of course, talking about his persecution, imprisonment, and murdering of Christians. Oops. The story of Acts is going to give us a little peek into exactly kind of what happened. This story comes before Paul's conversion, when he was still called Saul. They bring a, a disciple of Christ before the Jewish council, called Stephen. And when the members of the same Hedron heard what Stephen said. They were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he had done this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply for him. But Saul, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Saul, among with many of the other religious leaders, were presented with Stephen. And then they were given false witness about Stephen to show that Stephen was a threat to their way of life. So Saul, in his oneness of high standards and an even higher moral code, approved of the death of Stephen. And then zealously begin destroying the church. What we see in this story is one of the greatest strengths of a one collide with one of the greatest weaknesses. Because ones have a basic desire to be good and to have integrity, one of the greatest strengths is high moral standards. At the best, ones reflect the purity, the goodness, and the righteousness of God. Ones are vitally important to maintaining the holiness and proper moral direction of communities. They are moral navigators using the North Star to plot a course through the ambiguities and the pitfalls of life. Yet, that moral North Star can become one of the greatest weaknesses. That's what we see here in the story of Saul. Saul used his moral North Star to navigate the problem that the church was causing in his community. 
The problem, though, the real problem, is that he had the wrong North Star. And since one of the basic fears of ones is being seen as corrupt or evil, it can be painfully difficult for ones to admit that their understanding of morality is wrong or less than perfect. Because admitting that would mean admitting that although they, they desired to do good and thought they were doing good, they were actually doing wrong. They were actually going against what they truly stood for. And for Paul, it took nothing short of a direct revelation from Jesus himself to admit that he had the wrong moral North Star. We hear later in the story that meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to go to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, he suddenly a, a light from heaven flashed around him. Saul fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They had heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand to Damascus, and for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he actually elaborates on this story and mentions this realignment of his moral standards, which again can be very difficult for one to do. He writes, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia, and later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. It took direct liberation from Jesus plus Three years of studying, wrestling, and relearning for Paul to reset his moral compass. That's so much time and energy. The steadfastness of a one is a wonderful, wonderful trait because it means that they're not easily swayed off course, but it can become a weakness when that course truly needs to be corrected. Now this event in Paul's life sets up two important things that we see throughout the rest of his life. The first is the theme of God meeting Paul in his weakness and then growing Paul into a healthier and fuller expression of his oneness. Second is that this event gives Paul's inner critic all the fuel that it could ever need. Ones, as we learned more than any other Enneagram numbers, struggle with that inner critic. They are constantly having to defend their thoughts and their actions against themselves. 
They put themselves on trial daily. On a macro scale, we see this in Paul when he writes to Timothy. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Like many ones, Paul's inner critic could never let him outrun his past. He held on so tightly to the sins of his past that in his own words, he viewed himself as the worst of sinners. Ones more than any other Enneagram number can struggle to be free of their own guilt. Because they hold such a high moral standard, they can beat themselves up over their own imperfections. Doesn't matter how big or how small those might be. On a micro scale, we see this wrestle within Paul in his letter to the Romans. Listen to this internal conversation happening. Listen to the voice of the inner critic coming out in Paul's writing. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work, that although I I want to do good. Evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that is at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You can see, you can hear the struggle that Paul has on a daily basis with his inner critic. The struggle between knowing the moral code that he should be living by and the guilt of not being able to live up to it. And it tears him up. Ultimately, it culminates with Paul's exclamation, what a wretched man I am. But at the very end, we begin to see how God is working to grow Paul into the healthiest, the fullest version of himself. Because Paul is able to say that although I am a wretched man, thanks be to God. Because Jesus delivers me from those inadequacies. Delivers me from the voice of that inner critic. Paul continues in the next verse saying, Therefore, 
There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. It is the forgiving and the transformative power of God's grace that silences or at least minimizes the voice of the inner critic. And when ones can learn to accept and to lean into God's grace, they are able to explore the healthy and gross aspects of the oneness. If you remember, the growth of a one leads into joy. And we see this health in Paul's oneness in his letter to the Philippians. And he writes to them in all of my prayers for you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion into the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is able to appease his inner critic's disdain for imperfection by accepting God's Grace. Paul understands that we live in an imperfect world, a world where none of us can live up to perfect moral standards. And instead of allowing him this to turn him into a critical condemnation of himself and of others, Paul is able to see how God is carrying all things into the completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Not Paul, not himself, not imperfect humans around him, but God. Paul is able to see how God's grace freely forgives and lovingly transforms an imperfect world. And through accepting God's grace, Paul himself is able to step healthily into his oneness and can joyfully partner with God in God's ministry of reconciliation. And this brings us to one of the the attributes of God that the ones strongly reflect. They reflect God's order. They reflect God's righteousness. But when they can learn to accept the fullness of God's grace, they reflect to the world God's transformation. And it's why they're called reformers. Ones have the potential to deeply reflect the fullness of God's grace in all aspects, both the lovingly and freely given forgiveness and the kind and lovingly guided transformation. We see this displayed in in God's self and God's own actions in the book of Malachi. Now, the book of Malachi will read a little similar to a court case between God and the people of Israel. As we, as we read through it, listen to the section and see if you can hear the reformer aspects of God. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Have we wearied him, you asked, by saying that all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and that he's pleased with them? By asking, where is the God of justice? And Paul is here, do you, do you see how the Israelites are pushing back on that oneness of God? They're pushing back on God's morality and ethics and reliability. They see evil in the world and they think that because God's not living up to this moral standard that God should be, God's failing. Or at least God's not living up to the moral standard that the Israelites have placed. And we continue reading, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. 
And then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness, and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of the wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and who deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord. I, the Lord, do not change. And so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how do we return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me On this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines of your field will not drop their fruits before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. And then all the nations will call you blessed, and yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. But you have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. And yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said that it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. And certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. But then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. And the Lord listened and heard. And a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and who honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not, or as a one might say, between right and between wrong. Did you hear the oneness of God just oozing throughout that whole section? Like ones are known for the reliability and consistency. I, the Lord, do not change. Ones are known for the ethics. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud the laborers of the wages, who oppress the widows and fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. Ones are known for doing things the right way, and then for teaching others that right way. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. Test me in living the right way and see if there is not a better world at your fingertips. Most of all, ones are known as reformers, for he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap, He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. You see, the Israelites were correct that God was not living up to the moral framework that they were living by. And that's because they, the Israelites, had the wrong moral north star. The Israelites wanted the evildoers of their time to be destroyed, but God... The great reformer knew that that destruction would also include the Israelites. God gave 
the Israelites the opportunity to repent and to reform. God worked to have the Israelites make God their moral North Star. God's reformation is not one of critical destruction of the fire, but is the purification of refinery. Or as Paul wrote, it is the joy that we find in the confidence that God is carrying all things into completion on the day of Christ Jesus. God's reformation is the fullness of grace, freely given forgiveness, and lovingly guided transformation. God is the perfect example of oneness that maintains that high moral standard, but who is also able to gently and graciously grow others to live into that morality, because it is the good, right, and righteous way to live. So if you are ever feeling untethered in life, uncertain of the next move that you should be making, try making God that North Star in your life. Not necessarily the compass of culture or of your history or of your family or of your tradition, but, but God, the one who does not change, the one who loves and forgives freely. And then find yourself a one in your life, because they can help you chart that course in following God. And if you are a one, there's a few things that you can work on to grow into the fullness of God's image within you, because we need you. We need you in our lives, and we need you in the world, because the world is a messy place right now, and we need some reformation. You are important to making a better us and a better world. So some things that you can work on to make sure that you are the healthiest, fullest version of yourself. You can practice grace. And practice extending grace to others so that you can also learn to accept the grace that God is extending to you. Fail every once in a while. Learn to make mistakes, because not everything is going to be perfect. And rarely, if ever, will anything be perfect on the very first try. And as hard as it's to hear sometimes, that's okay. Focus on what's going right. If your inner critic is always telling you or drawing your attention to what's going wrong, to what you're doing wrong, then find some time and create a space in your life to intentionally reflect on everything that's going right. And then try someone else's way. Remember that humans are not always perfect. Only God is perfect. So every once in a while, try doing things someone else's way. Who knows? It might actually be a better way than yours. Here's the note to oneself. Dear self, accept the world's imperfections today. Remember that God made all of us perfectly human. God accepts us, even though we're a work in progress. And if you have a one in your life that you love dearly and want to continue growing that relationship with, here's some things that you can try to interact with them a little better. Now that you, to show that you see them. They're sometimes really hard on themselves. That inner critic is always playing. So reassure them. What they're doing is fine. Let them know that you value their advice. Apologize to them when you make a mistake and then show that you truly are trying to do better earnestly listen to their concerns before just trying to lighten the mood. Learn to take your share of work and responsibility in that relationship. And what's super important to remember, the thing that has helped me a ton, is to understand that the things that might 
be very frustrating to your own type about type ones, might just be teaching you something about the very nature and character of God, whose image all of us were created in. So if you get irritated by the rigidity of the plans or the high standards or the correcting of how you do things, keep in mind that the one's ability to plan and that the desire to hold people accountable reflect God's desire and ability to create a better you and to create a better world. God has a plan for us. And according to Jesus, Loving God and loving others, well, those are just about the two most important things that we're supposed to be doing. We are the many faces of God in the world who created us and whose image we have been created in. We need each other. We need each other to be the best version of ourselves that we can possibly be so that collectively we can come together and have a more complete picture of who God is. We're gonna move into a time of communion where we get to remember the love and the grace of God. We get to remember the ministry of healing and restoration and reconciliation that marked Jesus' life. We get to reflect on the hope that Jesus' death and resurrections are just the first fruits of our own death and coming resurrection. We get to use this time to find comfort that God is working towards the completion of all things, the completion of you and me and the world. And so I invite you to use this time to open yourself to God's forgiving and transformative grace. We offer prayer partners over by the prayer wall and the cross. If you need someone to talk to or pray with you, we have communion stations set up around the room. If you're joining us online, we invite you to join us in communion with whatever you have. And if you need prayer, there is someone in the chat who is there willing and ready to pray with you. Again, we're going to do two prayers today, our type-specific prayer along with a more generalized one. And hopefully this will speak deeply to each type each week. And hopefully it will help the rest of us see deeper into the heart, the minds, the struggles of each type, of each other, allowing us to have a deeper sense of appreciation, a deeper respect, a deeper love for those who are different than us. So we'll pray and we'll give you some space. You with no memory of the past and no eye on the future hold me in this perfect moment. Thank you for your acceptance of who I am and for loving me because of who I am. Empty me now of my judgment and guilt. Teach me forgiveness so that I may forgive myself for not forgiving myself. Journey with me on this path towards accepting myself as I loosen rules and lower standards that prevent me from fully loving. May I come to know deep in my marrow that my inherent goodness so that my earning and efforting may end and I can rest in your boundless grace and mercy. Lord, author and perfecter of all things, you are the one who knit us together in our mother's womb. You are the one who created us to display you to the world. You are the one who knows our motivations, our deepest fears, our deepest desires. And through all of it, you walk with us. You walk next to us as our heavenly parent. 
when we stumble, when we fall, when we move into disintegration, you hold our hand and you walk with us and you show us a better way. When we move into growth and integration, when we live out the fullness of who you created us to be, you rejoice with us and you want to show us off to the world. Lord, we pray to fill your spirit with us this morning. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power and the fellowship and the unity of your spirit. Amen. Well, there you have it, uh, that message on Enneagram Type 1s. It's our prayer with these messages each week as we're walking through the Enneagram that maybe you see yourself, maybe you uh, see or hear something uh, that, that clicks and something that you've always wondered about uh, yourself or the way that you view the world all of a sudden makes sense, all of a sudden you see things a little more clearly. That can happen uh, if you are, are listening to one of these messages and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm a one or I'm a two or whatever. Um, and that's also our prayer that if, if that's not the case for you, that maybe that's uh, the case for someone else in your life, right? That you see them more clearly, you understand them in a better and deeper way. And of course, ultimately, uh, that we would see and know and understand God more clearly, that we would um, gain a, a deeper and, and richer picture of the character uh, and the nature of God. Because the truth is that all nine of these Enneagram types sort of embody these different characteristics and aspects of God. And so, um, again, our hope and prayer is that throughout this series that you're discovering for yourself, that you're discovering for the people that you love and life with, and you're discovering about God. And we'll come through this whole series with uh, a bigger, uh, more robust, uh, even more beautiful picture of who God is and who we are in All right, that'll do it for now. Uh, For this episode of the podcast, we'll see you next time.